As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. And welcome to the third season finale of Plotting Through the Presidents. Yes. Yes. The show where we dig into lesser known stories of the early republic. I cannot believe we finally made it. Yes. I'm sitting here in a comfortable chair today with a blanket over my lap. And I've, it seems like I've aged 50 years this season. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like if we were doing this podcast <laughs> when I'm in my old age... This is what it might look like. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> but we've got some delicious chocolatey wine we're sipping on. Yeah, some nice dancing juice. I, that's an interesting name for it. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I like little that. little Carmenere. Yeah. 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 little South American grape. Goodness. <laughs> First off, thank you for joining us. Uh, if you've been with us a while, thank you for sticking with us. Yes. Reach out on Facebook or Twitter or email plottingthrough at gmail.com. Drop us a line. Consider joining our Patreon, where we'll be sharing new content over the cold winter months while we hibernate and gear up for season four. Oh. And you can always find out more <laughs> at plodpod.com. We're already thinking about season four? Yeah, this is season three. Next season is four. I mean, spoiler alert, numbers. <laughs> Ooh, announcement. Ooh. We were just guests on Jerry Landry's podcast, Presidencies of the United States, where we discussed Thomas Jefferson's legacy as a cabinet member and overall. It's really great stuff. I highly recommend that you check it out. We did not pull any punches, and it's a fascinating talk. Yes. Today, we are not talking about a president, but a founder who was close friends with two presidents and accused of killing another. Uh... We're talking about Dr. Benjamin Rush. I cannot wait for that. I think I've been asking for this for years. Careful what you wish for. Why? I'm finally receiving it. <laughs> Careful what I wish for. Do you even know why you ever wanted this? I think so. He showed up in a few episodes. Yeah, he, he pops sounded, up everywhere. He sounded like such a gnarly doctor. He's something, yeah. And I want to thank uh, our patron, Jacob, for suggesting this episode as well. I don't know if I ever would have thought to do an episode on Benjamin Rush um, if it weren't for Jacob saying, <laughs> hey, this sounds like um, a pretty gnarly doctor. You should really, I don't know, do an episode on him or something. Uh, well, you know so what? thank you, Jacob. Jacob is on the same page as me, and it took Jacob to say, hey, dude, this would actually be a good episode, even though I've been saying yeah, that's that for why a while. Jacob came to us you and only he said listen that, to and it was really cool. I think this is... <laughs> You you seem to only listen to patrons. Wow, Jess, you know what? For a low monthly fee, I will listen to you too. For a low month, I pay you. I've paid you enough. <laughs> <laughs> so Rush was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and he was a man far ahead of his time in many areas, but dangerously ignorant and dreadfully stubborn in others. But wasn't that all doctors? I mean, as far as the ignorant part. Well, yeah, to an extent. But I mean, you know, they were bleeding people out then. It's, it's, it's relative. It's relative. Our focus today is on a trial in 1799 between Rush and a newspaper publisher named William Cobbett, who accused Rush of being a quack whose radical treatments for the yellow fever killed more people than they saved. Wow. 
So this is a trial story. This is a this is a story in two parts. Okay. The second part is going to be more about the trial. It's like Law and Order. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Like, this is Law and Order Benjamin Rush. Okay. There's got to be a good tagline for that. This is Law and Order Rush Hour. Rush Hour. Or this is Law and Order me- Medical Criminals. <laughs> or this is Law and Order Malpractice. Don't don't do. Part one, Benjamin Rush and the Yellow Fever. Okay. So Benjamin Rush was a charming dude. Tall, blue eyes, light brown hair and a ponytail. Super kind and good natured in person. Full of great gossip. Mm -hmm. One of his medical students said that he had a voice sweeter than a flute. Oh. And it fell on his ears like droppings from a sanctuary. Okay, droppings, huh? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's a good thing. Like his voice sounded like poop. <laughs> poop from heaven. Heaven poop. He also had a real big head. Okay. I don't mean his ego, although for sure. I mean, okay, look at this picture. Did you send it to me? I'm about to text it to you. Okay. Science. I hope I sent it to you, because if I send it to some random, <laughs> they're going to be so confused right now. No, it's to me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't... It's. Is it his head that's weird or the lack of neck or? I'm not sure, but this is from Stephen Freed's recent biography, Rush. It says, unpublished earliest portrait of Benjamin Rush. And I bet when Freed found this, he was like jackpot. It's slightly terrifying. I just don't like it. It really rubs me the wrong way. Well, here's a later picture that you can judge. Oh, okay. Um, I mean... His eyes don't seem far apart in this one, but his forehead seems rather large. <laughs> he did. He had a big forehead, and some people said that was because of his ego, and some people said it was because he was so full of ideas. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, science was wackadoodle all around. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, science and politics. As far as founding fathery stuff, he was pretty instrumental in the American Revolution. Hmm. He helped get Thomas Paine's pamphlet, Common Sense, printed, and he even gave it its name. Oh. And he fought in the war. He was the chief physician for Washington's troops. He'd studied medicine in his hometown of Philadelphia and in Europe. And when he came back, he had lots of ideas and he was hot stuff. Hot stuff. He's the reason the military requires short haircuts. because to show off those big foreheads? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> he sounds like a strange man who shouldn't be responsible for anyone's medical care. So far, I'm not Team Rush. No, the short haircuts were because when you're... Like in the trenches, you don't want to be dealing with lice and other gross stuff that grows in your hair. And yeah, you don't want hair in your eyes during combat either. No, never. I can I can barely deal with hair in my eyes like walking down the street. Yeah. And like I said, he signed the Declaration of Independence. He helped get the Constitution ratified in Pennsylvania. How did he even get into those positions as a doctor? How did he wind up in politics? He was very politically minded as well. Um, he had a lot of ideas. He was outspoken. He was one of the youngest people in the Continental Congress. He was he was a very political creature, too. Okay. I like how you call him a creature. I feel like that's <laughs> his paintings do, um, do hint towards some kind of creaturehood. Maybe a little bit. But I, I struggle with him because on one hand, I think he was really brilliant. He was so far ahead of his time when it came to some of his beliefs and the what, things what he were, advocated for. What were the things he was ahead of t- his time with? All right. Here's some of the good things. His thoughts on mental illness were mm-hmm. radically ahead of their time. Okay. He considered mental illness and addiction and alcoholism to be diseases that should be looked at like physical diseases mm-hmm. and treated. Mm-hmm. That's compared to the belief at the time by many that mental illness was like due to some kind of moral weakness. Oh, okay. And uh, patients with mental illness in hospitals were treated horribly. 
their cells weren't even heated or cooled because it was thought that they couldn't feel temperature. Mm. So he he really reformed a lot of that. Okay, that's great. And one of the things that he advocated for mental patients, he asked that certain kinds of labor, exercise, and amusements be contrived for them, which shall act at the same time upon their bodies and minds. Oh, Mm-hmm. And my my this is very much my background. Yeah, he talked about the advantages of labor and how patients doing work at the hospital had a higher recovery rate than those who did nothing. So this is the belief system of occupational therapy. He is credited with being a pioneer in the yet to be created field of occupational therapy. That is so cool. Yeah. I'm loving him now. All right. All right. I'm Team Rush. There we go. All right. <laughs> Thanks can... for joining us, everybody. <laughs> yeah. When I saw that, I got really excited for you. Yeah. That's very cool. I mean, that's the main rooted belief of occupational therapy yeah. is the fact that doing doing something meaningful helps your health. Right. Which is why with children, when you work with children, it's all about playing because that's their most meaningful activity is playing. Yeah. So you have to find your most meaningful activity and that will make you healthier. Love it. It's very cool. Yes. And it has the science behind it. It does. At that time, uh, it didn't, but mm-hmm. it was very theoretical. But it was one theory of Rush's that really panned out. And it's just so interesting that, I mean, it's funny that then he calls that pamphlet common sense. Because when you think about it, it is common sense. Oh, I do things that I enjoy and that makes me feel good. And therefore, I'm a happier person. Yeah. To me, that is common sense, but it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't a common sense in the medical field at all. This was a discovery made. Yeah. You know, so it wasn't just common sense all along. And I think it really took me by surprise that it wasn't. Yeah. He was also extremely anti tobacco. And he wrote about how it was addictive and caused cancer. Mm, that is advanced. Yeah. <laughs> I mean,. <laughs> Definitely. Like, I feel like doctors into the 1950s were still like, oh, well, this cigarette's good for you. Well, maybe they were just ignoring it to make money. Well, there's that too. Well, doctors weren't really making money off of tobacco, were they? Well, if they were from the South, they probably were. Oh, Because of plantations and tobacco was big money even back then. Okay. Yeah. So there is a reason why they might ignore that advice from Benjamin Rush early on. Yeah, definitely. He was against capital punishment. Mm. And he helped Pennsylvania get rid of it for all crimes except murder. Wow. Yeah. I don't know what all crimes you could be killed for before mm-hmm. then. I know. I was like, what were... You shouldn't have stolen that that bread. Jean de Valjean. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that's incredible. Yeah. He pushed for public education for everyone, including women, black people, and immigrants who didn't speak English even. This man is like way ahead of his time. Yeah, totally. And we could use him today in some (laughs) regards. Yeah, yeah. (sighs) And then there's slavery and race. Is he ahead or behind? Or let's let's get into it. Okay. The scared. Don't be scared. I don't know if I can be pro Benjamin Rush after this part of the story. I think you still can, but but you might have a little little like. Um. Did he own slaves? Technically, he owned one. Okay, well, that's a problem. It is not me. great. It is not <laughs> a good is, thing. Yeah, that kind of is a is a game changer. Yes. <laughs> that's kind of a, what do you call it? A deal breaker. Yeah, it's not great. It's not great. Um, and it was it's not remotely great at all. It was also probably a little confusing for the other people in the abolitionist society that he was the president of. Oh, my god! And wrote the Constitution for in Pennsylvania. That is confusing. 
He was incredibly pro-abolition and outspoken against the slave trade and slavery. He even helped black people in the community form the first two black churches in Philadelphia. That's beautiful, but you got a little little hypocrisy there. You got got some hypocrisy. Yeah, um, nobody can quite explain the, the the slave thing along with all of that. But we don't know. We don't know what the relationship was for sure. Maybe he was trying to save him. Although it's, that's it's possible. All really, like, I, I don't know. I, I think he may have lent him out for work too. So it. Okay. Yeah, I'm not okay with it. Okay. Not okay with with ever owning a human. No, certain things are very difficult to justify. But when you look at his legacy on race overall, you have to consider how far ahead of his time he was. Okay. And then there's this. Oh, God, there's more? More than owning a human? The podcast Sawbones has an episode on Benjamin Rush where they talk about the good things, and then they really tear him apart for the bad stuff. Mm -hmm. And one of the attacks, I think, is a little unfair. Huh. It's because one of Rush's theories that he threw out once, it was that black people were at some point generations ago white and they got some form of leprosy that made their skin black. What? And that they could perhaps be cured of their blackness and to stop it from spreading further, maybe the races shouldn't mix. Oh my gosh. It's just so sad that here, this is an abolitionist and still their views are all screwy. Yes. Like really screwed up. Yes. Like being black is a disease or the result of a disease. Which sounds bad. Can't can't deny that. That is really bad. Not great at all. That is disgusting. But it was coming from a place of ignorance about melanin and skin color. He filled in those gaps of knowledge with wild speculation. And yes, an incredibly ethnocentric notion that white skin is the norm. Well, and racist. Yeah. That, That black skin is not only not the norm, but it's... you know bad yeah it's a disease yeah he was looking for the answer and and not going to great places but i don't really think that his reputation should be dragged specifically for this because when you look at all his actions he's still way way ahead of his contemporaries and it's because he truly believed that white people and black people were equal intellectually and everything else you compare Mm -hmm. that to somebody like thomas jefferson who you know compared black people to animals yeah so he was trying to figure out okay we are equal why is their skin a different color what's going on there what's the cause of it his answer to that was was comparing black people to leprosy pretty bad it's bad yeah but people with leprosy were still people they were still humans there was just something wrong going with on with their body. <laughs> there was something wrong with them. Not great. Sounds bad. Yeah. Um, but it, it wasn't like something he screamed from the rooftops. I think this is a good example of how um, you can be an abolitionist, but still be racist. <laughs> you know, and it's the same thing today. You can be an ally and still be racist. Uh, yeah. Know. I mean, I think the word racist applied to him is... I mean, it's accurate when you look at those specific ideas, but to just label him as that might make it difficult to see all the other stuff that he did that was really progressive and helpful. And it's, I I don't know, I I just don't think it's that helpful of a word for him because it, it, wow. Yeah. I'm a little, I'm a little bit shocked. I don't have a problem saying that his ideas, some of them were definitely racist. But to be like, which makes him a racist. But what does that mean? So when you <laughs> like Benjamin Rush was a racist, the end. Nobody gets it's anything out of end. that. Nobody learns anything from that. When I say a racist, I guess that 
that in our language labels him a little bit more harshly, but he definitely was a racist. He was ahead of, more ahead of his time, but just like you and I are allies and we're going to be on the right side of history, we still have our own racism. Sure. He owned a human being and he was comparing black people to the result of leprosy. Yeah, know? it's like, to me, some of it goes back to people first language. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he was a person with racism, okay. but I think like saying he was a racist, like that... You're bugged. A, a little bit because it's just You feel so, like it's summing him up. Yeah, kind of. And cat and pigeonholing him when he was more than that. Yeah, and I feel like there are people like John C. Calhoun where I'm very comfortable saying he was <laughs> a racist. Right, right. So where's the line for you, I guess, is the yeah, question. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. It's uh, There's definitely a line, but it might be hard to um, delineate. Well, I'd like you to delineate that. We've got a lot it. more to go. We, I know, but this is important. Um, I don't know. I think when it characterizes their actions... I think Mm -hmm. when it clouds their judgment and has negative impacts on their community or the country, I think that's a big part for me. Okay. I think when there are things they could have done that they clearly didn't, or there's hypocrisy within Mm -hmm. their words and their actions. Like owning a human when you're the president of an abolitionist team. Yeah, that's a little, there are questions, (laughs) definite questions there. Yeah. No, I'm just playing devil's advocate. No, I I get it. I understand how... So far, I like him, even though he's racist. I like him. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. He's that... likable. <laughs> okay, let's see. If, let's there's, see if we can change your mind about maybe that. Maybe there's some redeeming qualities. We will see. Even though he owned a human. So yeah, there there are very positive things about him, but there are also very frustrating things about him in ways in which he was hypocritical and and so damn stubborn. Mm-hmm. I think about something that John Adams said once. He was a really good friend of Rush's. Oh, really? Yeah. Adam said, thanks be to God that he gave me stubbornness when I know I am right. (laughs) This applies to Rush even more. Okay. Except unlike Adam's, Rush was a doctor making life or death decisions Mm -hmm. for a whole city, basically. Mm. So let's talk about the yellow fever. Okay. And its relationship (laughs) to your ankles. What? Can we compare it to like my wrists? No, no. Okay. Rush owning a human's okay, but my I can't talk about my ankles. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. First off, what is yellow fever? It is a virus that starts off like a common flu. If you were living in Philadelphia in the 1790s, this is what you might experience. Headache, muscle aches, fever, chills. Those symptoms last maybe three days, and then you feel better. Oh, that's tricky. Yeah. Like you're out of the woods. Okay. And then you die. You are not out of the woods. (laughs) Not quite. A couple days later, the second phase starts. It goes after your organs, including your liver. That's when your skin and the whites of your eyes become jaundiced, yellow, hence yellow fever. Then comes the vomiting, the black vomit, they called it, because of the internal bleeding. Oh, that's... I thought this was a history podcast. (laughs) That internal bleeding is what ultimately kills you a week or so into that second phase. And it's not limited to the 1790s. Yellow fever still exists, and there's still no cure for it. Okay, but we have vaccines for it? There is a vaccine, yes. Oh, wow, science. Yeah. So great. But I don't know that it's widely available. So Hmm. it is possible that there could be an outbreak in the U.S., and by the time it's discovered what it is and the vaccines are out there, Thousands of people could die. Wow. Yeah. I think I had my yellow fever vaccine when I was traveling. Yes. If you go to certain places, you definitely get I d- it. I get, yeah. You have to. I had mine. If you get yellow fever, you have about a 5% chance of dying. But if you get jaundice, if you get to that second phase, 
that fatality rate goes up to 20 to 50 percent. Ooh. Back then, they had no idea how the disease was spread or where it came from. In a season with so many dangerous animals, it's fitting that the subject of our season finale would depend upon the deadliest animal in the world. I've asked you this before, I think. Oh, gosh. Do you remember what it was? Mosquito. Yes. Got it. Yellow fever is spread by mosquitoes, not person to person. Mm. Mosquito to mosquito. Yeah, mosquito to person. (laughs) (laughs) Mosquito to person to mosquito. Yes, and yes. And person to mosquito. Yes, you're getting it. (laughs) Good. It's a pattern. But these mosquitoes are nasty little buggers. It's the Aedes aegypti species, or the yellow fever mosquito. They came to Philadelphia in 1793 from the West Indies, and they came to Los Angeles in 2001 from China mm-hmm. on shipments of lucky bamboo. But they didn't really start being a nuisance until 2011, and they get worse every year. The very mosquito behind the yellow fever outbreaks back then mm-hmm. is the same species of mosquito that went to town on your ankles <gasps> to the point you thought we might have bed bugs. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I was going to say, we're in real deep shit if mosquitoes start carrying bad viruses again. Yeah. Because they, they're, they've been eating the shit out of us. I know. They're day biters. They bite you a bunch of times in one feeding and they're gone before you know it. I, you don't even notice that they're doing it. They're nearly it's, impossible to avoid. They can breed in, in the amount of water that fits in a bottle cap. Oh, gosh. Yeah. That's disgusting. Yeah. And in the hot summer of 1793... These mosquitoes had literally decimated Philadelphia, killing 10% of the population. Wow. People who could leave did, mostly wealthy people. A lot of doctors left too. What did Rush do? To his credit, he stayed behind. He sent his wife and his kids away, but he stayed to help the people of his city because he felt that was his duty. Mm, That's pretty selfless of him. Yeah. He turned his house into a hospital. He He treated up to 120 patients a day. Oh, my gosh. He got the fever himself, and he struggled through it as best he could to keep treating. He lost his own sister and several of his assistants that summer. Oh, my gosh. There was death all around him. We can talk about bodies piling up and and death counts all day. Mm -hmm. But like our guest, Jeff Belanger, said a couple episodes ago, it takes one person, one story to really feel what was happening. Mm -hmm. Stephen Freed recounts the story of black aid workers who were going through the city collecting the bodies of the dead and one little girl who was yelling at them when they took the body of her mother saying mama is asleep don't wake her oh god and then the little girl broke down and started crying saying why are you putting mama in a box oh my god scenes like that were happening all around philadelphia it was hell on earth it's terrible and this was a mysterious deadly incurable disease that benjamin rush was up against Rush thought that there had to be a cure for every disease. God wouldn't make a disease that couldn't be cured. He just had to find it. He went back to his books, and he found a dusty old manuscript that Benjamin Franklin had given him. Oh, wow. It was the accounts of a Dr. John Mitchell, who had written about treating yellow fever way back in 1741 in Virginia. Mitchell had a radical idea about bleeding and purging. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't working, he said, you had to bleed and purge more. Oh, God. If the body is weak, you have to make it weaker if you want the patient to recover. Why? What's the reasoning behind that? I don't know. (laughs) Did Rush listen to this? Mitchell wrote that if you wanted to beat this disease, you had to push past your concerns that a patient was too weak to be purged. 
Go against your instincts. Bring them closer to death. Oh, my God. This idea was not a good one. No, it doesn't sound like it. And one problem with it is that Mitchell only treated six cases of what he thought was yellow fever. Uh Medical historian Saul Jarko dug into Mitchell's writing, and he found that five of the six cases Mitchell treated took place during a time of year when it would have been impossible for mosquitoes to spread the disease. Oh, gosh. So whatever Mitchell treated, it was not yellow fever. (laughs) And it just seems like a bad way to treat any patient with anything. Agreed. (laughs) But Rush didn't ask many questions. Oh. He embraced Mitchell's advice like a divine epiphany. Why? He decided that he needed to give people a more powerful purge than they'd ever been prescribed by anyone. Oh. Other doctors called it a murderous dose or a dose for a horse. Oh, God. It was a combination of mercury and jalap, which was some kind of plant, like a, I don't know, like a yam that makes you poop. Okay. Um, it was it was a combination of this that would make the patient have four or five large evacuations. Okay. Vomiting or or defecating? I think both possibly. Okay. So it's basically like giving them food poisoning. It sounds like it. Yeah, it's it's causing Ugh. contractions. It's oh, it's God. emptying the bowels and it's yeah, it's not good. Oh god. It just sounds awful. Yeah, well he followed it up with taking massive amounts of blood, enough to remove all stimulus that might be negatively affecting the body. So if you were conscious, he hadn't taken enough blood. Oh my god. Part of the problem was that he believed the human body had twice as much blood as it actually did. So he's a death doctor. Ah, that's that's harsh. <laughs> you love this guy. You have like a no, no. I'm you just, love this guy. He can do no wrong in your eyes. That's not what I'm saying at all. Um, <laughs> compare, no. Compare black people to a disease. He's not a racist. <laughs> Bleed people till they die. Oh, he he's not the angel of death. That's not what I'm saying yet. No. Okay. Um, he also said that kids needed the same amount of blood taken as adults. Oh, why wouldn't they? But he's a doctor. All people are alike. But yes, but children We're all we're all equal. Black people, white people, adults, children, we all weigh the same. There's less blood streaming through their body because they're just like literally smaller. That's just like your opinion, man. Common sense. Yes. Where's the common sense? In some very important ways, he was not good at science. (laughs) Yeah. He also decided that all these different fevers and diseases, they weren't different. They were all the same disease and all disease came from blood vessels and having too much pressure on them. Okay. It's like that scene in The Exorcist where the old priest shows up and Father Damien says, "Uh, so far she's manifested three different personalities. And the old priest cuts him off and says, there is only one. (laughs) That was how Benjamin Rush felt about disease. It's all the same thing. Yes. And he thought there's only one disease and there's only one treatment for all of it. There is one demon and one treatment. And the treatment is bloodletting. Oh, God. So he bled patients who had yellow fever or who might get it because he thought it could prevent yellow fever, too. This makes no sense. So like basic logic. Yeah. I mean, he'd be there. He'd be like, oh, you think you might be getting sick? Let me take this lancet here. Slice open that artery in the crook of your elbow and let this blood pour into a bowl here. Yeah. Let's weaken you as much as possible. Oh, no. We're out of bowls. Because I bled so many people here. Oh, uh, the floor is fine. Um, I know this gross. treatment. I know the treatment's working because when I took your pulse before, it was 48. And then I started taking your blood. And now it's faster. 
And I don't realize that that's because your heart's working harder to pump what blood it has left in oh, your body. God, because so... I'm not actually a scientist. And what? Oh, wait. Oh, oh, you're dead. Oh, God. That's terrible. He talked about taking 60, 70, or even 80 ounces in some cases over a few days. An adult only has maybe 200 ounces of blood in their body. And he <sighs> took way too much of it. Way too much. So what was the outcome? He had to have been taking some kind of data like, oh, this is working or this isn't working. Oh, like, yeah. When did he realize it wasn't working? <laughs> um, Right around never. What? Yeah. What yeah. kind of doctor is he? He doesn't believe in evidence? It's a good question. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to brush all this aside when you're talking about Rush. Stephen Freed acknowledges it, but he kind of takes the stance that Rush didn't invent bloodletting. He just really got behind it. He was just a doctor doing his job with the tools he had at the time. But it sounds like he took it and ran and made it popular. He, was it popular before him? I mean, it sounds like it was in this hidden manuscript and he like found it and made it you know, common practice. It was popular. What he found in that manuscript and he pushed to make common was to do it more, to just <laughs> keep going. To like purge, hardcore purging. Yeah, and bleeding. If it's not working, do it more. Don't be shy. Don't That's, be worried. Yeah, don't get your scruples all up in a bunch. <laughs> don't be concerned. Oh, they're dead. <laughs> he was just a doctor doing his job with the tools he had at the time, but he wasn't listening to a whole lot of other doctors who were saying, don't do that. That's why you have peer-reviewed evidence now. <laughs> yes. There's another recent bio of him by Harlow Giles Unger. It's called Dr. Benjamin Rush, the founding father who healed a wounded nation. Why does that name sound familiar? Um, I've written about Unger before. He tends to fall in love with his subjects. And his books uh, are a mixture of explaining why each subject is the true savior of America. Okay. And why anyone who disagrees is an idiot. Right. Only the ignorant, he says, dare judge events, actions, or conclusions of those in the past on the basis of current knowledge and conditions. Oh, see, I have a problem with that. He says this about Rush bleeding, but I get what he's saying, but all the doctors at the time were telling him his treatments were irresponsibly dangerous. Yeah, it sounds like people of the time were also judging Yeah, can, <laughs> his actions. can we judge him on the basis of them? Yeah, can we judge him on the basis of uh, people, his peers judging him? <laughs> yeah, and Unger doesn't really defend bleeding, but he says any deaths of patients under Rush's care, however, did not and do not diminish his standing as one of the greatest, most brilliant physicians in the history of American medicine. You and Unger sound like you might like each other, though. <sighs> I don't agree with this. <laughs> I, I don't think you can say that he's the best doctor no matter how many people he killed. Do you hear me? <laughs> I think you're, but you're saying, look, he's a fantastic human being who was very progressive. And so you can't call him a racist, even though he owned a human and even though he compared black skin to leprosy. You know, yeah. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's talk a little bit about politics. Oh, oh, we weren't talking about politics. We're talking about medicine. Okay. Yeah. Talking about the relationship between the yellow fever epidemic and the earlier days of COVID-19, Stephen Freed said, when there's a shortage of science, politics always fills in the gap. Mm. Yeah. Everything about the yellow fever epidemic got politicized, starting with where it came from. So this isn't like a new thing. No, no. We thought, oh, wow. Interesting. So Rush was a Republican or Democratic Republican, Mm -hmm. part of Jefferson and Madison's party. So any thoughts that he put forward were considered the Republican opinion. He thought that the disease came from within the city, Mm. specifically that it had come from some rotten coffee at the port that somehow entered the miasma or the impure air. Um, But he thought that sanitation and cleaning up the city would help. Mm -hmm. That part's true. Yeah, that helps everybody. But that offended some people who thought that Rush was blaming the city for Uh, the disease. I'm not blaming you. I just think it should be more sanitary. (laughs) Right. Federalists, led by Alexander Hamilton on the other side, and and Rush and Hamilton really hated each other. Mm, That's interesting. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people we like really disliked Hamilton. (laughs) Yeah. Even though we really like Hamilton, it Hamilton seems like had a, a lot, lot of enemies. Of... Rush yeah. had a lot of enemies too, he, but he had a lot of friends. But Hamilton tended to think that the disease came from foreigners and that stopping immigration would solve the problem. Mm. Yeah, the Hamilton of the musical was a lot more in favor of immigrants Ooh, than the real Hamilton. Yeah. Treatment over the yellow fever became even more politicized, if you can imagine that. Oh, God. Rush announced his aggressive bleeding and purging treatment in the newspapers. And then very soon afterward, Hamilton came out with an alternative. He and his wife, Eliza, had gotten sick. Eliza. And they were treated by an old friend of Hamilton's uh, who used what was known as the West India Cure, mm-hmm. which was wine and bark and Netflix and chill. <laughs> it was much less invasive. I really like that way better, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a good a good way to get better. Yeah, Hamilton said that they felt better soon, and the West India treatment made the yellow fever feel like a common cold. Mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson, who's on the same side as Rush here, he thought that Hamilton's yellow fever felt like a common cold because it probably was. He said <laughs> Hamilton was basically a crybaby. He never had the yellow fever. Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But now you've got wine and bark, which became known as the Federalist Cure. And the excessive purging and bloodletting, which was the Republican cure. Mm -hmm. This made Rush believe that any doctors who weren't bleeding their patients were doing it for political reasons. So not only were these doctors, in his mind, enemies of the American Republic, but they were also murderers if their patients died and they hadn't bled them. Oh, my God. Because they knew better. Yeah. In Rush's mind, his treatment was handed down by God and it was infallible. If someone got better... It was because of the bleeding. If someone died, it's because the disease was just too far gone. Or they didn't, he didn't bleed them enough. <laughs> Maybe. 
I find that religion and politics is also very intertwined. Yeah, and he was a devout Christian, very religious. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, he believed in the separation of church and state. He okay. didn't, yeah, he didn't think that public officials should have to swear an oath to Jesus, which in Pennsylvania at the time they did. Okay. But I think that organized religion is a really good lens to look at Rush through for like the best and worst parts of him. Interesting. Explain what you mean. Okay. Um, You're like, sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right. If you insist. Twist my arm. (laughs) So the best parts of organized religion um, would be the messages of charity and love and the teachings of Jesus and the idea that we're all the same. Rush really took those to heart. Well, again, to me, that's common sense and just being like having any kind of moral compass. Yeah. But this is how most people heard about these things back then. Yeah. It was through religion and it's what they associated these morals with. They didn't know how to give to someone else before they were in a church. Um, That's what They were probably in a church before they even remember being in a church. I see. And what can be some of the worst things about organized Mm -hmm. religion, I think, Mm -hmm. are that it's dogmatic this is the only way. And right. and it can give people an emboldened sense that they have the backing of God behind them. When they murder other people. Yeah. And anyone who disagrees is, is evil. Mm-hmm. One doctor who had the yellow fever, he was treated by Rush. He recounted the story that Rush bled him until he was extremely weak and ordered several other bleedings. So Rush laughed and the doctor skipped those other prescribed bleedings. He's like, mm, I don't think so. Then Rush comes back to see him He sees that he's sitting up in bed, and Rush ran to him, squeezed him by the hand, called him Dear Glentworth, and congratulated him on the salutary effects of his bleeding system. (laughs) But, said he, my dear friend, you must lose a little more blood. And it's written in all caps, cool font. (laughs) Lose more blood, replied Glentworth. When I am so faint, I can hardly support myself. Upon this, Rush started from the bedside, caught up his hat, called his dear friend an assassin, told him that he was leagued with another doctor to ruin his reputation, and he ran downstairs bawling out, you're a dead man, you'll be buried before tomorrow night. Oh my goodness, there's some paranoia, first and foremost. Second of all, can't he have some like constructive criticism? Um, I, I see just a few big issues with him as a doctor. Yeah, like no. Lack of evidence, you know, not listening to your peers <laughs> and yeah. paranoia. Yeah, maybe some insecurity and he got very defensive. Mm-hmm. Um, this Glentworth guy, by the way, survived without more bleedings. Oh, good. Yeah. Rush definitely still had his followers, but most of the doctors in the city, especially in the prestigious College of Physicians, they strongly disagreed with his treatments. And it set off something called the Doctor's Wars. Oh. Yeah. It sounds like he started becoming less in favor than, you know, like he started becoming an outcast almost. In some ways, yeah, definitely. Okay. So the Doctor's Wars involved accusations of murder based on what treatment was or wasn't given, even violence between doctors, and a growing mistrust in doctors in general. Because if they couldn't agree on this, like, why should you listen to them anyway? Right, right. That makes sense. It was not good for anybody. When the winter frost came and the mosquitoes could no longer breed, the 1793 epidemic ended. Wow. So how long did it last? It really only lasted for a few months. Wow. And 10% of the city died. Wow. That is really incredible. It was one of the worst health catastrophes in the U.S. ever. 10% of the city in a few months. Yeah. And there were 50,000 people in the city. So I think that's 5,000 people. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. In just a few months. Yeah. And it was a very compact city. Yeah. Like pretty much everybody lived within eight blocks of each other. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, But then it returned in 1797 and all the old accusations started flying again. And Benjamin Rush just as vehemently promoted and defended his bleeding as the way, the truth, and the light. That made him a ripe target for attacks in the press, especially by one, William Cobbett. I'm Annie from Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm Johanna from Vienna, Austria. We are the hosts of Fresh Hell, your international podcast that covers murder, mystery, and the macabre throughout history. Are you interested in the 3,569 ways your household could have killed you in the Victorian era? Do you know how malaria and syphilis played a role in the John List family murders? And have you ever wondered what Prince Albert's sex chair had to do with the murder of Stanford White? Okay, nothing. It had nothing to do with it. We're still telling you about it, though. It's a pretty great sex chair. If you're looking for another show that talks about Ted Bundy, this is probably not the podcast for you. But if you're looking for two women that cover lesser-known cases from all over the world with a lot of background information. So much background information that you will rock your local pub quiz from now on. Then find Fresh Hell Podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also have German cannibals. See you soon. Tschüss. Part 2 William Cobbett and the Trial. Mm. William Cobbett was an Englishman and proud of it. He was living in Philadelphia because he got into some trouble in England and then he fled to France and then France was doing its French Revolution thing. Mm -hmm. He noped out of there and he landed in Philly. Wow. He was teaching English to French immigrants. He had a bookshop and he had very... He had a bookshop. Yeah. He had a love him. He had a bookshop with King George in the window, a big picture of him, which was quite a talking point. Okay. In Philadelphia, you know, where independence had just been declared a couple decades earlier. (laughs) Really strange choice. Yeah, he had very strong political opinions. He he had pro British opinions, which aligned him with the Federalist Party of Hamilton and Adams, and he found his way into political writing. Okay. Yeah. I really this is one of those things about history I'll never understand. If you're pro-Britain, how are you aligned with Hamilton and people who, you know, help the independence? Sure. They weren't like pro-Britain in a way that said we should stop being independent. Um, independent. But at that point, Britain and France were at war. And some people sided more with Britain and some mm-hmm. people sided more with France. Okay. And the Federalist Party sided more with Britain. I see. Which made a lot of sense because economically we were incredibly tied to them. Okay. His writing was so prickly that he got the nickname Peter Porcupine. (laughs) And he owned it. It's adorable. (laughs) Yes. He started publishing a daily newspaper called the Porcupine Gazette. Uh, And it was easily one of the most popular newspapers in the U.S. And the funniest. Oh, great. This sounds like your kind of guy again. Um, In some ways, yeah. Abigail Adams said that it was always witty, this newspaper, and its humor had more good than ill. Oh. High praise from Abigail. (laughs) Cobbett liked to target the Republicans, like Jefferson, in his writing. And when the Yellow Fever came back to Philadelphia in 1797, Cobbett set his sights on the hardcore Republican Benjamin Rush. Cobbett didn't like how Rush was so self-righteous about his cure, and he really enjoyed ripping into him. Others were criticizing Rush, too, at the time. Remember the doctor's wars? Mm -hmm. But Cobbett was relentless and popular and funny. (laughs) You get far being funny. To an extent. Uh, oh yeah yeah porcupine's gazette included a lot of fake letters there were articles written by cobbett 
but supposedly written by readers sending in their thoughts and experiences. Oh, that's tricky. Yeah, this was satire, and, and some people probably got it, and others didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of them, no matter what, found it funny. He started the series in the point of view of a tavern keeper who was affected by the yellow fever. Uh-huh. The gist was, I'm just a regular old tavern keeper, but with this yellow fever raging, I'm not getting any customers, so I have to close my business. What am I supposed to do for a living? Mm-hmm. Hey, I have an idea. I'll become a bleeder. It's easy. Any idiot could do it. There's a lot of demand. And what's the worst that could happen? Someone dies? Look, they're not exactly going to complain, are they? (laughs) And then I get to take their stuff. Okay. Cobbett also called Rush a sangrado, Mm -hmm. which referred to a character in a popular book, this quack doctor who excessively bled his patients. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. (laughs) Cobbett even threw some poetry in the Gazette. He wrote lines like, the times are ominous indeed when quack to quack cries purge and bleed. Gosh. Rush was not amused. No. I, I, I'd be surprised if he was like, this guy's great. Right. Well, from Rush's perspective, like Cobbett wasn't even there in 1793. Mm-hmm. He didn't know what Rush had gone through. What right did he have to criticize him? Yeah. I mean, that's true, too. Yeah. And then the final straw was <laughs> Cobbett saying that Rush's bleeding treatment killed more people than Samson. Wow. Rush had called his purgatives the Samson of medicine. And here Cobbett was turning that around and calling him a murderer. Yeah, that's so hard because, I mean, when you look when you look at it, even though his choices were poor, when you look at it, I mean, he did devote his life to treating yellow fever yeah. in a way. He stayed, he sent his family ahead. He stayed behind. That's very noble and selfless. Yeah. I mean, he devoted his life. Yeah. And risked it. Yeah, he to, had good intentions. To be this the forefront of saving people. And mm-hmm. then, you know, you're getting torn down for it. I, as a doctor or someone trying to help others, that can be incredibly. I noticed that same theme in Jessica Jones. Interesting. <laughs> She's just trying her best to help people. And then everyone blames her for shit. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I haven't been watching this season with you, but um, I feel her. Rush was convinced that it was Cobbett's writing. That was uh, destroying his reputation and livelihood as his number of patients dwindled. Mm. And not just from bleeding. <laughs> Rush could not take this assault on his honor, especially not from someone who wasn't even American. Especially uh-huh. not from someone who was British. Okay. Yeah. And not even there. Exactly. So what could Rush do about it? Back then, you had a few choices. Mm-hmm. You could challenge someone to a duel or you could sue them for libel. Okay. Rush was not a fan of duels. I can't imagine not. <laughs> he thought that willfully taking a man's life was a grave sin, mm-hmm. and it was just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and this, this was... Kind of ironic. I know. It was consistent with his point of view on capital punishment. Uh-huh. Um, but not so much, you know, gutting and bleeding. Yeah. Well, he, he thought that was helping. Right. I guess it's all about intentions. <sighs> he would say that probably. <laughs> Also, Cobbett had been in the Marines, and he was probably a pretty good shot. Yeah. So maybe a duel is not the best idea. Right. Smart. So Rush decided he was going to take him to court. Okay. In a civil trial. That was easier to prove guilt than in a criminal trial. Uh-huh. And he didn't need Cobbett to go to prison. He just wanted and to uphold to his honor. <laughs> yes, to stop him and maybe ruin him. And <laughs> ruin him. Okay. Yes. Rush's attorneys had urged him not to take the case to trial. Really? Yeah, because a libel trial against Cobbett could be seen in the public as basically a malpractice trial against Rush. Huh. There was a chance it could backfire on Rush if he lost, 
or even if he won because it would publicize the accusations against him. Right. But Rush was determined to go after Cobbett. His honor and his ego would not let him back down. Rush has a bit of a theme of not listening to reason. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you could say that. And, and key points in his life. <laughs> yeah. This was an extremely political time in general. Mm -hmm. 1799 is when this case finally goes to trial. You've got like the newspaper wars of the 1790s. James Callender, the scandal monger. Oh, we had an yes. episode on him. Illuminati accusations flying around. Oh, Hamilton and Adams gosh. hating each other so hard. It's a, it's a scary time. All of this was in the lead up to the election of 1800 or what Jefferson called the revolution of 1800. <laughs> um, so if you're a longtime listener, thank you for one. But also this is a time period mm -hmm. that we've covered a lot. Right. And so much of this trial was about politics. Okay. So the trial... We finally made it to the trial. We'll see. <laughs> yes. It was going straight to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And they met in Independence Hall, the same place where Benjamin Rush signed the Declaration of Independence 23 years earlier. Wow. And everyone knew it. Uh-huh. The court had a reputation for cracking down on libel and leaning yeah. heavily Republican. Okay. So Rush is in luck? Yes. The whole setup is already super friendly to Rush. Okay. The chief justice of the court, Thomas McCain, he wasn't overseeing this trial, but he still had a ton of sway. Mm -hmm. He was about to be elected the mayor of Philadelphia. He had a really good reason to hate Cobbett mm -hmm. because Cobbett had been relentlessly criticizing him, too, okay. saying he was a drunk and that he beat his wife and his oh. wife beat him. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> for, so he felt he felt abused by him as well. Yeah. For so many reasons, this was not a friendly environment for the Englishman Cobbett. Okay. Which might be why he was nowhere to be seen. What? Just days before the trial started, he left Philadelphia for New York. Uh-huh. The prosecution, they said it's because he couldn't possibly defend himself, so he left. Right. His team, the defense, said that's because he'd already said his piece in his writing and he had nothing left to say. Uh-huh. He said later that it's because he'd, he'd already waited around two years for this trial. He finally decided to leave the city, and as soon as he announced he was leaving... That's when the trial was scheduled because he would be out of town. Oh, got it. I don't know what the actual reason was, but it didn't look good to the jury that he wasn't there. Right. And his defense team probably would have done a better job if he'd been there to guide them. <laughs> okay. This trial was very different from trials today. It was a lot more unfair and a lot more chaotic. Hmm. Um, first off, there was a jury and the decision was ultimately up to them. How does a jury get made back then? Um, they were, I think they were randomly selected. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, they, they selected a bunch of people and they announced who those people were going to be. Mm -hmm. And each side gets to like strike certain people from the list, like okay. no questions asked. And Cobbett's team saw this list and Cobbett thought there's only like, I don't know, a few of these folks that would be sympathetic to me at all. Mm. And all of those folks were strike from the list by the uh, prosecution. Wow. Yeah. Not looking good for Cobbett, but still in my gut, I feel like this is going to go the wrong way. We will see. Um, Just because you keep saying that, I feel like it's going to go the wrong way. You know, maybe it's it's misdirection on top of misdirection. Okay. I, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> um, no one knows the ways you work. <laughs> there is a jury and the decision is ultimately up to them. But the judges, and there are three judges... They can weigh in anytime and share their opinions and explain to the jury what the evidence means. The thinking was that the judges know way more about the law than the jury, so they should be able to be there to guide the jury throughout the trial. Oh, but they don't do that anymore. 
Um, I mean, they'll speak up yeah. when needed. Right. You know, about the law. Yeah. But they're not <laughs> in the room to sway people. No, no, I'm not talking about like during the deliberations. I'm talking uh, about throughout the trial. I see. The judges will be like, no, here's what they're saying. Here's what they mean. I see. Here's what you should do. Here's the verdict you should give. Like, <laughs> it, it got pretty clear. Pretty clear. So how did Russia's team, the prosecution, make their case against Cobbett? Well, first of all, they got the friendliest jury they could find. <laughs> we talked about that. Okay. And they were super political. So I don't know if, if everyone left on the jury was a Republican, mm-hmm. but it sounds like it. This is how political one of Russia's lawyers got during the trial. He said, I trust we are all Republicans. Is there a man who hears me that does not feel an indignation in his breast that an alien should abuse him because he is a Republican? Oh the citizen of the United States who is not a Republican is a traitor. Wow. Yeah. That's harsh. Yeah. And maybe he was talking about a Republican more in the sense of somebody who just believes in a republic, but it sounds pretty political. Right. Then Russia's team did three things. One, they avoided facts. Oh, that also sounds familiar. <laughs> Two, they made Rush look like an angel. <sighs> and three, they attacked Cobbett as an ungodly foreign anti-American terrorist who represented an existential threat to the American Republic. Oh my God. Alrighty. Yeah. As far as the facts, they didn't want to talk about bleeding. Uh huh. They said that Cobbett's attacks weren't even about bleeding. They were about Rush being a Republican, an American. Uh, but wasn't it about the bleeding? That's what. Yeah, that's what it was. But they okay. were definitely they were worried about the malpractice situation, probably. Yeah they they didn't want to get into the details of that, and they wanted to focus on the political differences and make it seem like political attacks. Uh-huh. Um, which probably was a component of what was going on. Okay. Yeah. They focused on how Cobbett was an immigrant, an alien, a foreigner, basically equating him to a disease infecting America. Jeez, more comparisons to diseases. Yes. And Cobbett wasn't there to show that he was just a person. So they could paint him with the same... However they wanted. Yeah, they could paint him with the same hatred and evil that uh, far-off, overreaching England was painted with during the revolution. The prosecution, uh, led by Thomas McCain's nephew, so this is the chief justice who had been abused by Cobbett, his nephew is leading the prosecution. Okay. Um, That does not seem quite clean. Not exactly. (laughs) He starts off the trial by saying, we're not going to focus on the facts and the evidence. There's there's a higher (laughs) truth at play here. Oh. This is an unusual trial. The godly truth? Yeah, kind of. He said, this isn't just about the American hero doctor whose reputation has been tarnished. This is about a threat to our very society and not some kind of theoretical threat. The prosecution implied that Cobbett was planning an actual act of terrorism and had to be stopped. (laughs) Yeah. But it's just, I don't know. When, When do trials start to make sense? I mean, they still don't in many ways, but when do they start to make actual common sense? That's a great question. There's a lot of common sense missing from this story. It's true. The judges just played along with this. They straight up told the jury that Cobbett's attacks were unacceptable and it was high time to restrain them. The prosecution was in a bit of a tough spot because here they are. They're Republicans and they're supposedly the upholders of the freedom of the press. Their entire campaign is focused on how bad the Alien and Sedition Acts are. Mm -hmm. Like, look what John Adams signed. He's attacking the freedom of the press and charging reporters with sedition or libel just because he doesn't like what they're saying about him. That was their stance. But here they were, 
suing a reporter <laughs> for what he said about Rush. Mm-hmm. The definition of stifling freedom of the press. Right. But they were brilliant. And they used the same, I know you are, but what am I, argument that we talked about a few episodes ago with the Illuminati accusations. Uh, okay. When How does that go? Yeah. Well, back then it was like, we're not Illuminati, you're Illuminati. Oh. And it worked. And it worked right. here too. So it's like deflection is brilliant. Yeah. In this case, the Republicans brushed aside accusations that they were impinging on the freedom of the press by saying that it was really Cobbett, the reporter, mm-hmm. who was impinging on the freedom of the press. Mm-hmm. They said, the high tones and pretended sons of liberty who bawl incessantly about the rights of the press while they blacken it with their detestable crimes, oh. who tell you it is sacred while they're plunging it in disgrace pretending to be its friends they are its deadly foes wow okay so yeah Cobbett is such a disgusting reporter that he's running it for everyone and it but it just um yeah it just muddles media in general when they do that yeah it's all muddled it's so muddled so muddled definitely a muddler involved yeah you can't really get to the bottom of anything or the truth of anything if people just keep pointing fingers. And that's the point. Back and forth and deflect. And it just becomes this big waste of time. Yeah. Cobbett's team, they argued that if everybody thought Cobbett was such a scoundrel, why would it matter what he wrote? No one would care what he thought anyway. <laughs> then why is his newspaper the most popular? <laughs> yeah. And besides, they said Dr. Rush said the same kind of things about other doctors in the press. He accused them of being assassins and murderers Mm -hmm. for not bleeding. So why Mm -hmm. should Cobbett be on trial here for Mm -hmm. saying that same kind of stuff? Okay. Their argument was basically, if Cobbett's guilty, he shouldn't have to pay Rush much at all, okay? Because he's not really damaging him. (laughs) It's like, he's not guilty, but if he is. (laughs) If he is, he's not that guilty, guys. Come on. Um, The defense also talked about the definition of libel and other legal Mm. stuff that didn't really matter because the prosecution already made it clear that this was not a case about the law. Mm-hmm. It was special. It's a special case. Yeah. We don't need evidence. We don't need. Case. No, don't look at evidence. <laughs> look at your feelings. Look at your heart and look at that empty chair full <laughs> of an alien. Full of an alien. Cobbett's team missed the opportunity to turn the case around and make it about Rush. So what could have been a truth defense, looking at whether Cobbett's accusations that Rush's bleeding treatment hurt people more than it helped. Instead of that, it became... Rush's team portraying Rush as a noble hero, a stand-in for American independence and glory itself, while portraying Cobbett as this insidious foreign disease infesting the Republic, Mm. an enemy of democracy who needed to be held accountable and stopped before he did irreversible damage to the young and fragile nation. But it just seems like they were avoiding a malpractice case. You know, they didn't want to talk about the bleeding. No, because if you talk about the truth... Mm. you might find that, oh, this really isn't libel. Right. So, yeah, they were completely avoiding that. And Yeah. And his defense team wasn't really fighting that either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cobbett never stood a chance. Oh, wow. The jury found him guilty of libel. Uh-huh. And they sentenced him to an unheard of sum of damages to be paid to Rush at that time. Oh, my gosh. Do you remember in season one, uh, the episode about John Quincy Adams versus the Internet? Mm-hmm. We talked about reporter Anne Royale's trial. Yeah. She was accused of being a common scold. Mm-hmm. That was in 1829. So that's that's after this. Right. Her punishment, when the judge agreed that the ducking stool was too cruel and <laughs> unusual, she was instead made to pay $10. Okay. She didn't even have it. Some other right. rival reporters are said to have paid it for her. So $10 in 1829. This is 1799 here. Mm-hmm. Oh, and there's also James Callender. 
Yeah. He was convicted of sedition in a criminal court for all the things he said about John Adams. Mm-hmm. He was sentenced to nine months in prison, and he was fined in 1800 to $100. Wow. Do you care to guess how much Cobbett was fined in 1799? 900 <laughs> One of the judges instructed the jury that in order to suppress so great an evil, uh. they would have to levy a fine that was outrageously disproportionate. The jury's there to determine innocence or guilt. And damages. Mm -hmm. And the judges are essentially saying to them, he's guilty, make it hurt. Oh, gosh. They took two hours to find him guilty, and they fined him $5,000. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That was huge back then. That's that's unheard of. It was unheard of at the time. It effectively kept him out of Philadelphia and the United States. Oh, gosh. I mean, that's really what it was about. Yeah, it was about him out of the country. Yeah. He moved back to England where he had a good career as a writer and he kept making trouble. But before he left, he published one more edition of Porcupine's Gazette and then five installments of a new paper called Rushlight, Uh in which he mounted the defense that should have been mounted during his trial. Oh, wow. That's really the power of being a writer. Yeah. And with the media, you can you get the last word. Yeah, if you can get out of the country and yeah, if it's not fast worth enough. it to keep pursuing you. He did pay most of the damages. I think there was a settlement. Wow. Yeah. How do you even do that? I don't know. I mean, he had one of the biggest papers, so maybe they knew that he had money. Wow. Yeah. Cobbett wasn't at his trial, but a transcript of it was published, which is pretty rare in those days. Mm. But this was an unusual trial. <laughs> So Cobbett was able to respond to specific things said during the trial and refute everything in his own prickly way. (laughs) He tore into Russia's character and the trial. And most notably, he said, let's look at the data. Wow. Which no one has done. No. (laughs) It was a revolutionary idea at the time. (laughs) Rush had said things like eight out of 10 of my patients recover and other stuff based mostly on anecdotal evidence without any sort of real study of the numbers Mm -hmm. done. But Cobbett looked at city records, and he saw that the death rate went up after Rush started advertising his treatment. Oh, my goodness. Rush had shared the names of 22 surviving patients who were bled more than 50 ounces. And Cobbett came back with, okay, but you treated more than 100 people a day. Oh, my God. It's not good enough to say everyone he touched did not die. (laughs) Rush had claimed a 90% survival rate. But a doctor that Rush worked with had different numbers that suggested a survival rate closer to 56%. Oh. Yeah. William Cobbett was way ahead of his time in like biostatistics and, oh, wow. and medical epidemiology. Um, wow. It wasn't really his intention. But by publishing those numbers and looking at the facts, that was something nobody else was doing then. Yeah, and it's when you look at the facts, it's quite different than what you presume to be doing. Yeah, and that's why we feel safe getting vaccinated and getting our kids vaccinated because of those numbers and the way that they're studied. absolutely. Yeah. Rush wasn't exactly destroyed by these allegations. He was still Mm -hmm. popular. He had a lot of students. Bleeding continued for a long time. (sighs) But his practice never fully recovered. Wow. How long did bleeding continue for? Uh, Into the at least mid 1800s okay yeah decades after this wow yeah even after that data was released yeah yeah even after that because not everybody's going to believe that or not everybody's going to stop what they're doing but it should be said i don't think people were bleeding people at the rate that rush was. was yeah at least not for the most part okay 
Yeah. It's really gross. Yeah. In 1810, Rush wrote a letter to John Adams about how those accusations still affected his reputation. Mm. He wrote that some have felt fainty at the sight of my carriage mm-hmm. and others have left sick rooms as soon as I entered them to avoid my company. Ugh. And he said he was now the physician of a family, the mistress of which has since confessed that she had often left company as soon as I came into it, only because my presence gave her pain. Oh my God. I was her raw head and bloody bones. Oh, wow. I feel yeah. like we've, I've heard this quote in one of our other episodes. Yeah, too. when we talked about this, uh, this old folklore monster boogeyman. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, with his big head and his love of bleeding, I think maybe that's a fitting <laughs> yeah, that's, moniker. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, gosh. Earlier, I mentioned that Benjamin Rush had been accused of killing a president. Oh, that's right. On the very same day that the jury came back with their sentence in Philadelphia, George Washington died at Mount Vernon. Mm. It's really not fair to say that Rush had a hand in killing him, mm-hmm. but that didn't stop Cobbett. <laughs> he probably bled him to death, let's be honest. <laughs> well, he wasn't there. He was in Philadelphia. Oh, all right. And it, I mean, it's its noteworthy that Washington and Rush did not get along either. They didn't uh-huh. like each other. Rush had criticized Washington's leadership really? during the Revolutionary War, suggesting that they'd be better off without him. Wow. Washington. She seems just kind of extreme. Yeah. Washington got hold of a letter written by Rush where, uh-huh. where he criticized him. Yeah. And washington held on to that letter his whole life he made arrangements for it to be passed on after he died and i think he wanted it to be known at some point that benjamin rush had said this stuff about him because Uh that would make rush look really bad okay rush was mortified at the idea of this ever getting out Uh so when a biographer started writing about washington and had all his papers Rush begged him not to publish the letter, but it was too late. The letter was going to be published, uh-huh. but he did manage to get the biographer to remove his name from it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it wasn't until after Rush died that anybody found out about that. Some twisted webs. <laughs> right. But that still wasn't enough for Rush to, to want to kill Washington. It's like the same thing as being careful about what emails you put out there. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> what you post on the internet. It's It stays, stays out forever. there. Yep. So when Washington was dying, probably of uh, epiglottitis, they didn't know that at the time, though. My sister had that. Yeah. As a two-year-old. That sounds just awful. Yeah. I mean. And she had a, a tracheotomy, right? Mm-hmm. That, was, that treatment was around at the time of Washington, but it wasn't that common. And they probably weren't sure exactly what he had. So he was not given that. Yeah, well, even at the time that my sister had it, um, there had been children who died from doctors looking down their throat. Yeah. But luckily, my sister, they knew exactly what to do, and they gave her a trach right away. That's great. But they're, you know, not all doctors knew what to do. She was yeah. just lucky. Yeah, definitely. So what did they do to him? They bled him. Oh, my God. But Washington asked for it. Okay. I don't know if he asked for it to this extent, one of Washington's doctors had been a student of Rush's. Oh, goodness. Yeah, a man named Elisha Dick. He helped remove 40% of Washington's blood from his body. That's so sad. Which very possibly helped contribute to his death. Oh, so sad. Thanks, Rush. I mean, Washington, you know, very likely would have died anyway. But, yeah. you know, this couldn't have helped. No, and it just it just shows you the direct correlation between like what you teach your students they carry oh, definitely. into the world. Yeah, and he had lots of students, and this kind of thing probably happened to lots of patients. Uh, 
So it, it's very fair to to not just say, oh, he was just practicing the medicine of the time mm-hmm. because he he propagated this and made it even more popular. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was criticized for it. He was criticized for it by by many. Mm-hmm. Even Thomas Jefferson disagreed with him about the bleeding. Mm. In 1814, a year after Rush died, Jefferson wrote, in his theory of bleeding and mercury, I was ever opposed to my friend Rush, whom I greatly loved, but who had done much harm in sincerest persuasion. He was preserving life and happiness all around him. Oh, gosh. That's what he thought he was doing. Yeah. And Adams, early on in 1775, before they became as close as they would, he said, but Rush, I think, is too much of a talker to be a deep thinker. Oh, gosh. Elegant, not great. (laughs) Yeah. He talked more than he thought. Yeah. Rush's own assessment of himself in a journal where he assessed all the founders was simply, he aimed true. Oh, wow. As in he aimed to do what was right. Mm-hmm. But that's not, not always good enough. And not a lot of self-reflection there. No, no. And that is the story of Benjamin Rush mm-hmm. and the yellow fever and the libel trial that came out of it. Wow. Yeah. Well, it was really great finally getting to know Benjamin Rush a little bit. Yeah. Like, I just didn't know anything about him. And now you know a little bit. And now I know quite a bit. Yeah, there's so much to cover that... I mean, I, I didn't have time for, but I did my best to make sure that, you know, what I did cover is accurate because unlike Dr. Rush, I know I'm not infallible, um, but you can still find all our sources at plodpod.com. Let me know what I got wrong. Mm-hmm. Click on the show notes for the episode. This has been one of my favorites. Wow. Wow. We'll I mean, see how it comes together. I have together. a lot of favorites, but this was definitely. Oh, well, I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah. It was a great finale. Thank you. Mysterious, involving blood. Lots of blood. Involving, you know, racist white doctors. <laughs> yeah, your who favorite. Think, who think they know everything. <laughs> you know. Don't listen to their peers or evidence. Yeah. If you like what you heard, spread the word. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, CastBox, all the fine places to listen to podcasts. Yes, please. Thank you for all your support. Keep up with us on Facebook. Subscribe to the mailing list on plodpod.com. Consider becoming a member of our Patreon family where you'll get some nice perks and bonus content before our next season. And thank you for plotting this season with us. Yes. We really appreciate you and your support. It means the world. So we will see you all in 2022. Happy New Year. Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Diwali. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy Festivus. (laughs) And stay safe. Thank you for plotting along with us. Thank you for plotting. Don't be concerned. Oh, they're dead.